All right. Well, I thought we would start today with a little bit of kind of where we are in the book in general. Um, so we're doing The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And in this book, um, Mr. Sandy gives a kind of prescription for conflict resolution from a biblical perspective. And he does that through these four G's of peacemaking. Um, so I thought I'd go back to this because this is the overall structure of the book that Mr. Sandy is setting out. And we've been walking through this over the course of our lessons. Um, so the first step is to glorify God. In other words, the question there is how can I please and honor God in this situation? And so as we've walked through, um, the first week I talked about, or the first week Nate introduced everything, and then we talked about how conflict brings opportunities specifically to glorify God, which led to Mark Henry teaching us about how God uh, desires that his people live at peace, right? That peace is part of God's character. And so we want to glorify him by seeking peace. Um, and then uh, Jeff actually taught about God's sovereignty in conflict, how God is in control over conflict, and we can trust his goodness there. And so therefore we can glorify him. And then Mark Werner taught and moved us from the first point to the second G, which is getting the log out of your own eye. And the question there is, how can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? And so Mark Werner taught a lesson to us on, is it really worth it, right? Um, as we go through a conflict, um, as we seek to... Uh... Thanks, man. Oh, no, that's fine. I think I'm good without it, but you can set it there. Totally good. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Um, so he was talking about that oftentimes we want to overlook an offense, right? That it's not worth it to pursue the conflict or, or to continue to fight it out. We have to look at offenses that are worth overlooking. Um, and then we're going to stay in this second point today on getting the log out of your own eye. And then as we move forward, we'll move to these third and fourth steps of gently restoring um, the other person. In other words, serving them in the midst of the conflict. And then going and being reconciled with that person. In other words, finding a peaceful resolution to the conflict that you're going through. Um, so today, like I said, we're in the second section still on getting the log out of your own eye. And as we look at that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to James 4. So James 4, we're looking specifically at the first three verses of chapter 4, but I want to actually start reading from verse 13 of chapter 3. So we're, we're going to read from James 3.13 through James 4, 3. I'm just going to kind of set up the context here a little bit. All right, go ahead and read it. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, now to chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I read that entire section because one commentator I was looking at on the passage actually argues that the paragraph actually starts with 313 and goes through the chapter division. So... 
um, pretty traditionally, people separate four, one through three as kind of a standalone section. But this commentator took it and put it with the earlier section on the wisdom from above. And I think that's helpful. If you look at that first section, um, start in verse 17. As, as James is describing this wisdom that we want to seek, not an earthly wisdom, but a wisdom from God, he says that wisdom is first pure and then peaceable in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he actually says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I think it's the NIV. It actually uses the word peacemaker there, which I thought was pretty interesting. So there are peacemakers, and we want to have a certain sort of wisdom. And then from that context, James moves into the beginning of chapter 4. And he references quarrels and fights that would happen among the church or happen among us as believers at any point. And James goes to the root of those conflicts, those quarrels and fights. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions are at war within you. That word translated passions is actually the word pleasure. It's actually the same word that we get the word hedonism from. Okay? So your pleasures are at war within you. The idea is our desires, what we want, what we are pleased with, are ruling us, and because of that, we get into conflicts with one another. So right up front in this chapter, uh, Ken Sandy uses this passage to argue, and I think very biblically, that the root cause of conflict is unmet desires in our hearts. At the core of any conflict that we go through, there is a desire that is not met. Now, just for, for a little bit of broader context, in the first chapter that I taught, we talked about how sometimes conflicts can be good, right? Sometimes conflict is necessary. An example would be if you have to confront false teaching, right? That's a conflict, but you need to have that conflict, right? So conflict isn't always something that we want to run away from and avoid. But today we're talking specifically about sinful conflict, right? Conflicts that come because of some sort of um, sinful pattern within us or in another person, and it just escalates from there, right? And that sort of sinful conflict, always at its core, has a desire that's not being met. So what we're going to do today, and this is what Ken Sandy does in the chapter, is we're going to talk about how a desire that's not being met progresses into that sort of sinful conflict. Because if you think about it, it's kind of strange, right? How do you just have a desire, you're just wanting something inside, and it's just within you, and then that works its way out into a conflict with somebody else? That's what James argues. Well, how does that happen? And in this chapter, Ken Sandy pretty masterfully kind of weaves a narrative that takes us from desire to conflict. So that's what we're going to walk through. And, and he walks through that in four parts. Okay? So and he uses kind of four first-person phrases here to go from desire to conflict. He says, you start with desiring. I desire. And then I demand. So I desire something. Then I demand that thing. I have to have that thing. Then I judge somebody else for not meeting my demand. I desire, I demand, I judge. And then lastly, I punish. I desire, I demand, I judge, I punish. All right, so we did a lot really quickly there. The reason we did that quickly is because that's kind of the, the foundation for the whole lesson, okay? James 4, 1 through 3 
Conflicts and quarrels come from our passions and pleasures that are at war within us. And so sinful conflict, at its root, has unmet desire. Um, I actually wish Dr. Hager was here today because he talked about this quite a bit. Um, man, it was a while back, but he was talking about how frustration in our lives comes because we think somebody else should give us something that they're not currently providing for us. Um, he had a lot of really good material on this, but essentially the idea is that conflict starts within our hearts and it starts with desires that we have that aren't being met the way that we think they should be met. Okay? Is everybody with me? And we kind of flew through that. All right. So the first one, I desire, okay? Ken Sandy argues that conflict always begins with some kind of desire. And that desire in the beginning could be inherently wrong. It could be something bad, right? Like you want to get revenge on somebody else or sinful lust within your heart or greed or covetousness or any number of things. It could be a sinful desire within you. But the desire that you have could also be for something really good. That good desire could be for success at work, right? You want to do well at your job. Or maybe the desire is you just want your family to be godly. You, you, you want to make sure you're emphasizing your family devotions and that your children are being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Or the desire could be for your, your ministry at a church or something like that to grow, to excel. And so, again, conflict can begin with a good desire, something good within you that the Lord might even tell you you ought to desire. But the question comes to, what should you do then if somebody else is standing in the way of that good desire? What do you guys think? Somebody, you have a good desire maybe for a godly family, right? You want to have your family devotions. This doesn't happen to me ever, so I'm not speaking from personal experience in any way, shape, or form. You try to have family devotions, and your daughter decides it's a good time to pretend to be a hamburger, okay? I'm not saying that's ever happened to me, but it has happened to me. And you say, no, now is not the time to pretend you are a hamburger. And you try to tell your daughter that that's not what's going to happen, and then you start to get really frustrated with your three-year-old daughter who has decided that it's time to be a hamburger, okay? What are you supposed to do in that moment? Somebody's getting in the way of that good desire. What do you guys think? What should you do? Let's talk about ideal world. Maybe not a hamburger daughter. You're patient, right? You should be patient with the person. What else? Go see mom. Send them to mom. Perfect. Absolutely. Mom fixes everything, right? But see, then that adds some more frustration because you're like, you're undermining my authority in this moment, right? Yeah, see, I'm not speaking from, I'm not speaking from experience at all there. I've never done that. Never done that. All right? But what should you do, right? And then, oftentimes, even so, a lot of times we're good, right? We'll, we'll see, okay, in the beginning you go to the person, hey, you know, darling, now's not the time to do that. We're going to have family devotions. You know, this is very important. The Lord desires that we do this and sing and read the Bible together. This is a good thing to do. And then she just looks at you and says, squawk, I'm a cheeseburger again. All right, what do you do? I'm not saying my daughter does that because they're not strange in that way, okay? But they do that. Um, what do you do if that person persistently fails to satisfy your desire over and over again, even over a pattern, not even just one specific thing, but a pattern of time. Maybe you're at work and you want to do your job well, 
and your coworker who you're really trying to be patient with, but every single time they get the numbers wrong when it comes to you. And so I used to be in a job in settlement and you, I would have to correct all the closing disclosures for real estate transactions and they come to me and every single time the closing disclosure comes and the numbers aren't right and it's like, you, you know our settlement fee is this amount, why is it different? And you start to get very frustrated. Again, this has never happened to me before, I've never done that, right? So what do we do when somebody persistently stands in the way of your good desire? Well, what often happens is our desires turn into demands. Unmet desires have the potential of working themselves deeper and deeper into our hearts. And that's especially true when we come to see a desire as something we need or deserve and therefore must have in order to be happy or fulfilled. And that's a straight quote from Ken Sandy, but he kind of, he doesn't really, you know, blunt any edges in this chapter. Okay, so we start to see a desire as something we need or deserve and therefore we must have if we're going to be happy or fulfilled. And here's some examples he gives, okay? Some examples that Sandy walks through. And I'm sure none of these will apply to any of us, all right? So we can go ahead and just judge other people for these statements, because you guys have never done this before, and I haven't either. So I don't honestly don't know why we're talking about this. All right, ready? Here's the first one. I work hard all week. Don't I deserve a little peace and quiet when I get home? Just a, it seems like an innocent statement, good desire. But something's happening in the heart of the person saying this. A second one. I just want the children to get along and work hard in school. Again, we've never, I mean, it's a good desire, but when you start adding that, I just want, that just changes everything, doesn't it? Or, I've worked harder than anyone else on this project. I deserve the promotion. Again, something's subtly morphing within the heart of the people saying this, which again, are not us. We've never done this. And fourth one, I just want to have the kind of intimacy God intended for marriage. Again, that just starts changing everything, doesn't it? I just want to have that. And so what King Sandy says in this chapter is that when a desire grows so strong that it controls our thoughts and our behaviors, then in the morphing of that desire from desire to demand, it has become an idol in our hearts. Um, what, what do I mean by idol there? How would you guys define that? What is an idol? Anything that takes away our view from Christ. Yeah, yeah. Anything that takes away our, our view from Christ. Anything that becomes more important to us than God, right? Um, can you guys turn your Bibles actually to 2 Kings? Kind of a random reference here, but it's a pretty cool one that uh, he points to in the chapter. 2 Kings 2 Kings 17.41. So in this chapter, um, towards the end of the chapter, the author of 2 Kings actually gives an explanation over who the Samaritans are. You guys remember them from the New Testament? The woman at the well, she's from Samaria, right? And there's this conversation that Jesus and the woman have, and she, um, he says that she's, she talks about how the Jews worship on this mountain, and so there's this contrast how the Samaritans worship and how the Jews worship. And the story essentially, just to kind of condense it down, is the Samaritans 
um, were people who, again, they're the residents of Samaria, which is part of Israel. And after the Israelites were exiled from their land, pulled away, the king of Assyria repopulated Israel with people from the surrounding nations. But as they're there and they're living in these now Israelite cities, these, these Gentiles are living in Israelite cities, bad things start to happen to them. It doesn't go well. And so the king of Assyria says, oh, the problem is that you're not worshiping the God of the land. So they bring in an Israelite priest to teach the Gentiles, who are living now in Israelite cities, to worship Yahweh. But then in 1741, we get a picture of what actually is wrong with the Samaritan worship. And actually, this is super helpful for understanding why in the New Testament the Jews hate the Samaritans. Right? You have the sort of the good Samaritan. Why is there such a, a divide between Jew and Samaritan? Well, this verse explains it. 1741. It says, so these nations, those are the Gentiles repopulated into Israelite cities. These nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So what's the story? These people are taught to worship God and they do. They start to fear Yahweh, the God of the Jews. But at the same time, they're still worshiping their pagan deities. All of their idols are still around. And Ken Sandy brings this up in the chapter because he's pointing to the fact that as Christians, quite often we serve God, we fear God, even, even more often than just, just saying that you're, I'm not even saying that you're like false and saying that I worship God, but you have a, you worship him, but simultaneously we hold on to our idols. Quite often we're like the Samaritans. We have things in our lives that we put on the same pedestal with God. And we try to act as though those things can continue to live alongside God. And the reality is, it's not going to work. So, Ken Sandy defines an idol as anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, and secure. Anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, and secure. He quotes Martin Luther in the chapter. Martin Luther says, To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. So to whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. And again, linking back to how we're talking about conflict in our lives, we're talking about getting the log out of our own eyes, evaluating ourselves in conflict, and if we go down to a root desire that has birthed a conflict, that desire has taken the place of God in our lives. We're starting to depend on that thing that we want to give us happiness and fulfillment. And so that desire has become a demand, which is an idol in our lives. And again, back to our earlier examples um, of the family devotions thing. Family devotions are a good thing. I would encourage you to make sure that you are having time reading the word and praying and singing with your kids. But if that becomes the thing that you need to have happen to know that you're happy and fulfilled in that moment, then suddenly the family devotions are an idol alongside God. And that's ironic because the family devotions are supposed to be designed to be worshiping God. And now those things are something that you've idolized as though they were God in and of themselves. And again, that could happen with success in work. That could happen with intimacy in your marriage. That could happen with um, making sure that you get to church on time on Sunday morning. Never dealt with that one either, you know? making sure you do these things. They can take the place of God in our lives. Again, just to be clear, idols can come from both good desires 
and wicked desires. Um, Ken Sandy says, it's often not what we want that is the problem, but that we want it too much. It's not what we want that is the problem here, but that we want it too much. All right, so we're going to take a, a slight detour here. We're talking about idols in our lives. How do we identify if a desire has become an idol? Right? Because we should have desires. We should want good things. How do you know if your want of that good thing has become an idol in your heart? Okay? So Ken Sandy lays out some diagnostic questions. I'm literally just going to run through these very quickly. But just to at least have them up there for you. He says, you can ask yourself, what am I preoccupied with? What is the first thing on my mind in the morning and the last thing on my mind at night? Or how would I answer the question, if only blank, then I would be happy, fulfilled, and secure? Or what do I want to preserve or to avoid at all costs? What do I want to hold on to or get rid of at all costs? Or where do I put my trust? Where do I put my trust? There's a couple more here. Let me go on to the next slide. Again, I know I'm running through this PowerPoint, but I think uh, Nate always puts these online as well, so it will be there if you want to look at it later. Um, or what do I fear? What am I afraid of? What scares me? Uh, when a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration, anxiety, resentment, bitterness, anger, or depression? Is there something I desire so much that I'm willing to disappoint or hurt others in order to have it? Something I want so much that I'm willing to hurt somebody else in order to have it. And these questions help us to root out and identify idols in our hearts when a desire goes from something, an innocent want of something good, to something that's now something I demand and it has become an idol in my heart. All right, so four-step process. I desire, I demand. The third one is, then I judge. And the idea is that somebody else fails to satisfy our idolatrous demands, and so we begin to criticize them and condemn them in our hearts. We start to break them down for not doing what we want them to do. Uh, he quotes David Pallison here, and he says, Who are you when you judge none other than a God wannabe? A God wannabe. So the idea is that we actually double our guilt. First, we have an idol, something we're setting on the throne as God, and now we're actually turning ourselves into some sort of mini-God and judging somebody else for not reorienting their life around what I have idolized. So we're idolizing something. We're pretending to be God. Um, and this sort of sinful judging, he lays down some criteria of what, uh, how you would identify it. He says it's characterized by a feeling of superiority, by indignation, condemnation, bitterness, resentment, absence of any sort of genuine love or concern for the other person. And then this specific one I thought was helpful. He says sinful judging often involves speculating on somebody else's motives. That's a toxin. I know I, I, I find myself in that all the time. Well, they must have done this because of this. They just don't want me to be able to do this. We start to speculate on why other people are doing what they do. And really what we're doing is when we're judging other people in that way, we're expecting other people to bow down to our idols. We have 
the new gods we've set up in our lives, and we become very zealous for our gods. And we want to evangelize the gospel of these false gods we've set up. And we expect others to convert in their lives to our new religion we've tried to establish. We want them to bow down to our idols. So, again, four-step process. We desire, we demand, we now judge other people for not bowing down to the idolatrous demands we've set up. And then fourthly, we punish. We punish people. This quote I, I thought was pretty, uh, pretty intense from the book. I thought it was really helpful. He said, idols always demand sacrifices. When someone fails to satisfy our demands and expectations, our idol demands that he should suffer. That's an intense quote. Idols demand sacrifices. And when somebody fails to satisfy our demands and expectations, our idol demands that that person should suffer. And so the punishment we inflict on others who don't meet our desires can take many forms. Angry outbursts, we pout, we withdraw from the situation or relationship, we become irritable, we do everything we can to make life miserable for that person. Even physical violence or that sort of thing can, can come out of this. But again, now that we've chosen to punish the other person, what's resulting? A conflict, right? And so desire, just as James told us, desires in our hearts that aren't properly checked then result in these sort of sinful conflicts. All right. So what I want to do, we have a couple more minutes. What I want to do really quickly, again, we have this process. I desire, I demand, I judge, I punish. Last time I was up here, I gave a couple of examples of conflicts. And I thought it was somewhat helpful, at least interesting for me. And so I did the same thing. We've got a couple of examples. And what I want you to do is we're going to look at trying to identify how this process might have happened in these conflicts, okay? So again, we've kind of talked about this on a theoretical basis, that conflict is rooted in desire. And now we're going to look at, okay, in real-life scenarios, how might this process of desire to demand, to judge, to punish have unfolded, okay? All right. So a couple of examples. Here's the first one. Florence has had enough. She is so fed up with Henrietta that she thinks it's high time she leave the church. In fact, she's already scheduled a meeting with the pastor. You see, Henrietta and Florence serve on the decorating team at church together, and Henrietta continually puts pink flowers in front of the pulpit. Florence hates pink. Okay, silly conflict, right? But we can see what are some desires that might have been at the root of what Florence is doing here in this story. What do you guys think? What would be a desire that would produce this conflict? Even a good desire. All right, we have, we have several responses at once. That was good. Let's start here. What'd you say? I said pink doesn't match. Pink doesn't match? So that could be a legitimate thing? Very legitimate, yeah. What'd you say, Mark? Oh, there were two Marks. So, point out, Mark, so Mark Jacobs, a variety of colors. She wants a variety. She doesn't want just pink. Mark Henry? She wants her ideas appreciated. She wants her ideas to be appreciated, yeah. Any other, any other thoughts? What about just a simple desire that she cares about her church? Probably a very genuine lady who cares about the well-being of her church and wants to see the church succeed well. And that desire now has become a demand and judging this other lady who's not doing it the way that she thinks it should be done. And now she's punishing. How's she punishing at the end of this? She's withdrawing, right? She's going to leave. She's over it. She's done. All right, let's look at a second example. 
Anderson's job has really taken off, which has meant more money for the family, but more hours in the office. Anderson's wife, Mina, is happy for him, but putting the kids to bed by herself every night is starting to take its toll. Last night, emotions finally boiled over, and both Anderson and Mina said a few things they wish they could take back. What do we think? What are some desires? I think both sides here, we can look at desires, and Anderson and Mina. What are some desires here that are good? Better job, more money. Yeah, he's trying to provide for his family well, right? He wants to have a good job. Yep, Anderson's doing that. What about Mina? What's going on with her? Yeah. Mm hmm. That's a good desire. Any other thoughts? She wants to spend more time with her husband. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's probably just stressful trying to take care of everything by herself. She feels like she's single parenting, right? Yep. And so you have two good desires here that can erupt themselves in a pretty nasty conflict, right? So again, we can see desire, demand to judge, and then the punishment here is pretty obvious in the things that they said to one another, right? They said things they wish they wouldn't have said. All right, third example. Ever since Giles started his company 12 years ago, he has prided himself on being the best. A few months back, however, a regular customer and a fellow member of Giles' church discovered a mistake in Giles' work and started leaving bad reviews of his company online. Giles is thinking about hiring an attorney to sue. What do you think? Again, maybe a legitimate case for defamation here. I don't know. Caleb could tell us. What do we think, though? Where's the desire that Giles had that was good in the beginning here? Works hard. He wants to work hard, right? What else do we think? What about the guy who made the bad review? What was his desire? Revenge. Maybe revenge could have been a bad desire there, yeah. What else could it have been? Could it have been something good? Resolution to the what's going on? Yeah, accountability, right? Yeah. We want them to be held accountable. Okay, and now, again, we talked, I tried to make it clear, they're both members of the same church, and now they're thinking about having a lawsuit between them. Might not be good, okay? Um, so we have a, a conflict here, huh? Yeah, a conflict that's happening here, a pretty nasty conflict that could really even divide the church, right? It could be a horrible thing. And it started with probably, perhaps, Maybe you have some bad desires there, the vengeance, but perhaps legitimate desires on both ends, right? But those desires become demands, which lead to judging and then punishing one another. All right, I have gone late, and I didn't realize I had because the clock in the back is a little bit lower. All right, so just really quickly, just at the end, he talks about some cure for an idolatrous heart in them. The first thing is recognizing that idolatry deserves God's wrath, and the only solution is to look at what God himself has done in the gospel of his son and dying and rising again. The only solution to our idolatry is in God himself. And then he talks about availing yourself of the means of grace. That's reading the Bible, praying for the Spirit's guidance, fellowship in the church, to identify and attack idols in your life. And then he talks about aggressively pursuing an all-encompassing worship of the living God that leaves no room for idols, right? Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God pleases himself in giving us the desires of our heart when those desires are correctly oriented by his word. So if we spend ourselves pursuing him, we make our worship of him all-encompassing beyond that, then we'll find that our desires have no need to change into demands that are idolatrous because our God pleases himself in taking care of us. Right? All right, let me pray to close us, and then we're, we're done for today. Lord God, thank you so much for your kindness to us, Lord, um, even in allowing us to go through this study, Lord. I know it's been so helpful for me. 
God, I ask for your forgiveness for the many times that I take legitimate good things and, and bad things and turn them into idols in my life, things that I look to for comfort and, and satisfaction and goodness. Lord, you are the only source of real satisfaction, and Lord, living for your glory is the only way that we can find true joy. And Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm us with an awareness of that, Lord, that as we go through the conflicts that we find in our day-to-day -day lives and even bigger conflicts, that we would be willing to get the log out of our own eyes, to uproot these idolatrous demands in our hearts and seek to live for your glory as we make peace with one another. God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.